Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. A lot of people getting in on the conversation throughout the course of our interviews, throughout the course of the first couple hours of the show. It's Rintoul and Sermon. You can get in at any time. 960-960-650-650. This is from the For What It's Worth department. Because, Karen, you and I both know this. When it comes to draft grades, prospect watching, potential trade targets, it's all in the eye of the beholder. So everybody out there has a different view of what a trade looks like, how likely a player is to get traded. Seth Jones, pretty likely to get traded. Most people can agree on that. But then there are people a little further down the list on this potential trade market that, depending on who you talk to, maybe they're on the move, maybe they're not. So The Athletic is one of the publications that does this. It drives conversation. And they've got their big 25. Here are the 25 top players who might be traded and even within the body of that, it doesn't suggest that all of them are going to be or even likely to be. I'll give you an example. Johnny Gaudreau, who many thought was on the move, and hey, maybe he will be. Johnny Gaudreau is on this list. Johnny Gaudreau, among forwards, they have at number 10. 10. And they mm-hmm. say the likelihood of a trade for Johnny Gaudreau is low. Now, a couple of months ago, a lot of people thought it might have been high. Daryl Sutter, Johnny Gaudreau, I don't know if that's going to be a match. But, again, according to their sources, according to what they've compiled, the folks at The Athletic who put this together, they don't think there's a great chance he gets moved. They have him on the board, so it's a possibility, but they have it low. This one's going to bug a few Canucks fans because this one gets a lot of debate anytime it comes out. Brock Besser. Now, Brock Besser's on the list. He's number 13 among forwards. He's the last forward listed. The likelihood of the trade, according to The Athletic, is low. But this is the quote that's going to rankle those who see him as a core piece in Vancouver and don't want him going anywhere, which, again, The Athletic is admitting by the admission of the chance of him moving is low. They see, too. But here's the quote. They're open to moving Besser, said a source. I like him, and he's a good kid. He can shoot the puck, and he can score. He's injured a lot, but I do like him. That's going to bother Canucks fans, that he's even on this list and that there's a quote attached to him that they're open to moving him. Well, we've heard his name bandied around, Scott, in previous seasons. There's, what was it, in coming back from, was it coming back from the COVID break that there was talk that Brock Besser's name was out there. I think that was put out there and Brock Besser was addressed this in the media. He was kind of a little pissed. He's like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. All this kind of stuff. Um, I didn't know his name was still out there again. I guess when it's always been talked about as a possibility, there's not a surprise that it should be out there. They're open to moving Besser. I like him and he's a good kid. He can shoot the puck and he can score. He's injured a lot, but I do like him. <laughs> this makes me think of a conversation that we were going to have and we talked about it with the LA Kings. Like, is this a piece that you see of bettering your team in the future? Or like, can you honestly get something better than a Brock Besser right now in the trade market? I guess that's the question for Jim Benning, if he's seriously considering this. Well, it depends. It depends what need you're trying to address. And this has often been the conversation linked with Besser. He can score, but is he untouchable? No, he's not untouchable. Doesn't mean they don't like him. Doesn't mean they don't see a future with Besser in Vancouver. But if you're trying to address another need on your roster, 
Maybe Brock Besser is a piece that you have to part with because he's not viewed as tightly in the nucleus as other players in Vancouver. Again, the Athletics says that the chances are low, yeah. but they put him on the list anyway. Nate, Nate Schmidt, by comparison, is number two among defensemen on the Athletics list, and the chance of Nate Schmidt moving this offseason, they rank as high. This one from, from Mike the Driver. Oh, dear God. Don't start the best, the Besser trade rumors again, please. LOL, he says. This will piss some people off, too, when you look at uh, Jesse Pierce, who is a reporter that's based out of Minnesota. Brock Besser, of course, back there right now. She had a quote on Twitter uh, that Besser had basically saying, like, he's pissed off after last season. and The, the entire team and core is pissed off with how last season was. They're going to come back mad. They want the playoffs. They know they're a better team. So when you put those two together, obviously Brock Besser wants to be in Vancouver, wants to be part of this core moving forward. So if you just want fuel to the fire, you can add that quote to the mix, Scott. So I mentioned Nate Schmidt. He's on their big 25 of players who could be on the move. Brayden Holtby is listed among goaltenders, and they put him in the middle. They said, ah, medium chance that Brayden Holtby gets traded this offseason. And some of this is attributed to the fact that Jim Benning went on the record and said, we're going to be aggressive. Right, we're going to mm-hmm. use all the tools available to us. We're going to be aggressive. It remains to be seen how aggressive he will be. Now, Vancouver's not in this spot where you look at the team and say, boy, it's on the cusp of taking this next step. Fans of Vancouver would like that. They like the core pieces of that nucleus, but I don't think there's a real push from the market to improve right now. You better be in the playoffs next year. You better be contending. I think fans would like that, but I think there's a little bit of patience attached to this as they try to get some of their financial future under control. But we come back to the question you asked at the end of last segment, and we're having this discussion with Jim Fox, and I think it's a really good one. When is it worth it, and what makes it worth it? Not to mortgage your entire future, but sometimes a part of your future. When is it time to dip into your asset base and say, we need to make the next step? And the team that we're going to hear the quote from isn't even in the NHL, but I want to bring this back to the NHL. This is from baseball. Bob Costas, legendary sportscaster, was on in Toronto today. And they asked Bob, Scott MacArthur did, look, this Blue Jays team, they got all the offense. We can see that they've got the potential to be in the playoffs this year. Do you bolster the roster right now? Do you give up some future to make this roster better? Do you wait? What do you do? Here's what Bob Costas had to say. The issue always is, and it may become even more of a head-scratcher if and when they expand the playoffs further. Is it worth it to mortgage part of your future, to trade prospects, to make the kind of deal that might make headlines if you're only in pursuit of a wild card that leads at present to a one-game knockout? You could play that game and you could lose it. Is that an illusion, chasing that playoff spot? rather than a division title, is that an illusion? Or is it something that, that's worth chasing? You feel maybe as the second half of the season comes together, you're a different team than you were in the first half, and you've got a chance if you win that wild card game to go deeper into the playoffs. Uh, those are all calculations that you have to make. The fans are always thinking here and now. We want our team to make the playoffs or at least make a run at it here and now in this season. But Mark Shapiro and company and other GMs, around baseball have to take a more sober look at it. Is it worth it? Can we find the kind of deal where the risk-reward ratio makes sense to us? So what makes it worth it? And each situation is different. The Toronto Blue Jays, for example, 
Are they willing to give up top prospects this season to acquire some pitching help because the offense is all there? There are a lot of fans that will say, based on what Bob Costa said, in that, well, hold on a second here. Maybe don't part with top prospects. Maybe if the price is right, you enhance your chances. But if we're just playing for a one-game wildcard opportunity, even though we've seen wildcard teams go on to win World Series, maybe don't do it now. Maybe you got to wait a little bit. But then there's this commitment back to your team and you've got a guy who might be having an MVP season in Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Do you feel obligated to give this young nucleus a chance and to push them a little further down the road whether they win the World Series or not? When I uh, look at the Blue Jays specifically, I'm like, no, you don't do that. You don't go all in this year. This team is set up to have these guys be even better in the next couple of years. You build off this, you don't mortgage a future because you need to look at where this team is going to go possibly now and where this team will go in a couple of years from now. I'm I'm all of the mind to, like, look at the Angels as, as an example. Well, they've wasted how many years of Mike Trout? They have one playoff series with Mike Trout since he's been there, and they got swept in the divisional series, and that's the only success. So the risk is that you waste away these guys because you just kind of play a patient and you don't bring in the assets to build around them. Do you think you have enough? I don't think that's what the Blue Jays will do in the next couple of years, but I'm of the mind, do not sell the farm just for this season because the likelihood is you're not going to win the division. You got two teams to chase, two pretty good baseball teams ahead of you. You got the Yankees on your heels. You're you're in the mix with a bunch of wild card teams. The risk reward for the Blue Jays right now is okay. If you want to improve your team without mortgaging some sort of the part of the future, I'm fine with that. But I do think that this team is set up for next year or the year after that. Well, I think most people would agree, Karen. I suppose the question is: Are you willing to part with part of what you've got in your asset base? Are you willing to part with some of that? I don't think everyone looks at this as the best chance for Toronto to win, but do you owe it to this team to give it a chance? And how much are you willing to spend to do that? I want to bring Jamie into this conversation as well, and I think this applies back to the National Hockey League, and there are a couple of examples in my head I can think of, and this is a really good dovetail off of what we talked about with Jim Fox. Like in L.A. right now, guys, they are looking at it saying, okay, we need to make a step. And that step is getting back to the playoffs and being a perennial playoff team. So what do we need to spend to get there? Because that's the step we, we need to take. And, and, Jamie, I'll bring you in right now. What makes it worth it? Because you don't have to win a Stanley Cup to spend some of your future on the now. No, and obviously in L.A.'s case, that's not the goal, right? They're not thinking we need to take a step all the way to being a Stanley Cup contender next season. They're realistic enough to know that's not where their team is at. So the the reward is different based on where you're coming from or the reward you feel you need to earn to justify whatever move you make. It's different depending on what situation your team is in. For L.A., if they go out and be really aggressive this offseason, I think obviously baseline, they got to make the playoffs next year, right, to justify it. And if you give up, you know, if they do part with a Quinton Byfield, for example, maybe you feel like you need to win around even in the playoffs to justify it. But they know they're trying to make a major step forward, but they're not trying to complete the whole rebuilding process this summer and go right to being a Stanley Cup contender. And to me, it comes down to factors, obviously. There's certain factors that are involved in this. Like, how much is your owner impatient? There's that too, right? I mean, I look at the New York Rangers team. Look what he did, Jim Dolan. Now he's impatient. They got to make the playoffs. Like, what kind of mortgaging their future are they going to do to try and make a big trade? Like, are you going to mortgage a... 
it's unlikely to happen because it's within the division, but are you going to look at a Alexis Lafreniere and a Capocacco and go after Jack Eichel because you need to win in the here and now? And so you're mortgaging parts of your future that could set you up for long-term success. Or I look at a appeasing a fan base, right? Like, is there a fan base that's been disgruntled in the past and thinks, look, like, we need to make the playoffs next year or there needs to be massive changes with this team? Like, I do think there are certain factors that are that general managers will look at at the time in and think, well, okay, like, is now the time to go in because there are people that are pushing us to go in at this point in time? Well, and there are different assets to spend here. Look at Calgary last offseason. The Flames said, we need to take a step here. We're spending money on Markstrom. We're spending money on Tanev. We need upgrades in those positions. We're going to use that part of our assets to go after some big fish on the free agent market. And I know Tanev is a tier down from where Markstrom would have been on the goalie market last year, but they spent some capital, and they were willing to give a little extra term than other teams to do that. You go back to hockey. Vancouver, for example. I'll throw this one out there right now. This is, this is an example of something that was done. We've seen the result, and you tell me whether it was worth it or not. The Vancouver Canucks traded Tyler, traded Tyler Madden and a second-round pick to get Tyler Toffoli. Now, keep the Toffoli re-sign out of this for a second. <laughs> Just keep the re-sign out of it. We all know that's a fail. That is a fail. Was it worth it to trade the prospect and the pick to go on a two-round run game seven and give the young players on this team, as it currently stands, the experience of that postseason and allowing them to take that step? You tell me if that was worth it. Jamie, I don't know about you. I think in the moment it was, it was a move that, okay, well, we're not sure what this third round pick is going to be. You know, he is trending in the right direction, but we want someone that has championship pedigree, someone that can come in and bolster a lineup and a position that, you know, Brock Besser was hurt at the time. So he comes in and helps the lineup. We'll see what could happen. This was all done, of course, prior to the pandemic happening, right? So, I mean, we have to take that into consideration, but it did get two playoff runs. It gave the guys something to aspire to at the moment. I think the deal was right for the team. It's so hard to do what you told us to do, Scott, which is to separate it from what happened afterwards with Toffoli, right, where they had a golden opportunity to bring him back at a reasonable contract. It's really, really hard to separate that aspect of it. Having said that, I I would say it falls in the category of, you know, I don't mind the deal. I, I don't think it was a home run. I don't think... You know, if the Canucks go on to become Stanley Cup contenders in the next three or four years here, I, I don't think it's because they got those two rounds in and they were able to beat St. Louis in the bubble. But I, I also don't look at what they gave up as something that's necessarily going to come back to haunt them in the years to come. So it was fine. You know, it, it got the job done. It got them into the playoff bubble and, and allowed them to help win around and go on a little bit of a run there. That's nice. I really enjoyed that run just as somebody who watches the team. It was a blast. So I don't look at it as a, a terrible, brutal, oh my goodness, how you could give up Tyler Madden, but I, let's not overstate the importance of, of it either. The reason I asked you to keep the re-signing out of it is because if the Canucks re-signed Tyler Toffoli at that number, then you'd say slam dunk. Great mm-hmm. great move, right? It makes 100%. it very debatable. It makes it very debatable where it lives right now. Was it worth it for that run? In the moment, absolutely, people were caught up in it. And JT Miller's a part of that as well. People didn't like the cost of acquisition with JT Miller, but then he had the season he had and leading the Canucks in scoring, and he did what he did in the playoffs and helped this team get to where it got. And people went, okay, 
I can live with the cost of our acquisition. Some of it's in the here and now. Look, Miller didn't have a very good year. The Canucks didn't have a good year. And some people say, ah, I don't know if it was, was worth it anymore. I'll give you guys another example. You tell me if it was worth it for Columbus a couple of years ago when Panarin was a pending free agent, Bobrovsky was a pending free agent, to not only keep those players on the roster instead of selling them off at the deadline, but also go out and get UFAs. They got Matt Duchesne. They got Ryan Dezingle. They pushed in. They got their first ever playoff series win, and yet those UFAs all walked. Was it worth it for Columbus to push some assets in? Uh, hindsight, I'd say no. I mean, what's the big deal of winning just one playoff round? I understand the, at the time, it was you swept the Tampa Bay Lightning, but you got in as the eighth seed, even with all of those acquisitions, Scott. So was it... Has it set them up for the future? Well, they're in a pretty decent position right now with draft picks, but they don't really have the greatest prospect pool, and no one talks about them as having, you know, this great setup to be set up for the future. So I'll say at the moment, I'd say no. I'd say it wasn't worth it. Jamie? We lost Jamie. Did we lose Jamie there? I think we've lost Jamie. We'll get him back in part of this conversation. See, I'm on the other side of it, Karen. I think it was worth it for the Columbus Blue Jackets because they needed to send a signal to their fan base that they were making progress. And it wasn't enough for Columbus to say, hey, we get to the playoffs on a pretty regular basis now. They needed to say, we actually can do something tangible in the postseason. And yep, it was very short-lived. It was very short-lived. And long-term, maybe Columbus would have been better off selling those. You can make that case now, the case that you just made. I think it was worth it at the time. I do think there's a time for your organization where you have to send a sign to your fan base, we're going to be better than we have been in the past. We're not going to keep rolling out the same thing. And some of that might be an effect on younger players, but some of that is a commitment to our fan base that when we have a team that we think we can compete, maybe we're not a Stanley Cup favorite, but we think we can compete. I think you got to send that signal sometimes. I think the, Tampa, or I think the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets, Jamie, I think it was worth it for them to do what they did. I disagree, Scott, because the thing is, you're right. They're right back where they started now with a franchise player, the most prominent player on that team, Seth Jones, wanting out, wanting a trade in part because he doesn't like the direction of the organization, right? So that's the hump they were trying to get over. They were trying to avoid having circumstances like that in the future, and it hasn't played out. They're they're back right where they were, where they're just kind of searching for direction and searching for legitimacy as an NHL franchise, I think. But you can go through these windows where you might not win a Stanley Cup, but you still consider them somewhat successful. Look, Columbus didn't go where Nashville went, but Nashville pushed some chips in, and Nashville eventually became a team that went to the Stanley Cup, and then there was a steady decline, and now Nashville, they got back in the playoffs this year, but they weren't a serious contender. At some point, don't you have to try to say, we're going to be about more than we have been in the past? I don't buy the, if you don't win a cup, nothing is worth it. Like I don't buy that Uh argument personally. I agree. I don't buy that argument either. But my point is, I think Columbus had a very, very specific goal in mind in doing that, right? And it was to change the perception of the franchise around the league. And they didn't accomplish it. They didn't accomplish it, though, because I think if they had accomplished that, I don't know if we'd be hearing this about Seth Jones. Again, I think they've, you know, they took a step forward, but it's been two steps back since then. And in retrospect, would they have been better off to move some of those UFAs, try to collect assets, and build a contender in three or four years? Would that have done more eventually to change the perception of the team around the league? Maybe. Maybe it would have, but they made some gambles post 
that deadline post that season that haven't worked out, and maybe one of them will in Patrick Line like it early. I don't know if he's going to have a better relationship with Brad Larson now that he's the coach and it's going to be a little different than it was under John Tortorella. I don't know if they go get Patrick Laine some help. I have no idea. It might pay off long term and maybe he ends up being a guy though it seems unlikely given his history in a smaller market that that he would want to be there a long time and he ends up being the face of the franchise. Maybe it is. Maybe it is him. I don't know. I think they're sustained success I, man if you're gonna just sit around and do nothing and keep spinning your wheels i think you've lost it i think there are times you got to be a little bit aggressive even if it doesn't work out i'm with jamie a bit on this like i just do believe that the perception that yarmo kekalainen was trying to change with going after those players and going after those runs the perception of the team the franchise the organization actually took a major hit massive hit after that because every single one of them walked away and now you want more walking away i have one question to throw to you both of you guys and it involves nashville because you talk about how much do you consider a playoff run or being in the playoffs important. David Poyle and the Nashville Predators this past season, the way that they got off to the season, it was he's open for business, right? They were going to trade Matias Hackholm. Like, he was one of the biggest targets. Yeah, the ask was big, but that's what they were going to do. And he, they started to play a little bit better. They were around the playoffs line, come trade deadline. Nothing happened. And they ended up getting to the playoffs as the, what is it, the fourth seed in that division. They showed well against Carolina. But now David Poyle has been saying he's open for business. Do you think that's, again, you over you are overestimating what a playoff, going to the playoffs can do for your team and or your organization, knowing that the likelihood is you're not going to get past the first round. Get in, anything could happen. That may have been his mindset, but it didn't happen. Does he look at this organization and go, damn, I should have made some moves ahead of the deadline because what the ask is right now for some of these players and some of the open for business that I'm going to get, I could have got so much better towards the deadlines. Does he regret overvaluing a playoff run? I don't think so, personally. I don't think he overvalued a playoff run. I think he just didn't get his price from Matias Ekholm. That's my read of the situation. I, perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps it was, nope, I've got to keep these guys together. They deserve the chance to go do something. Jamie, I don't know how you see it. I think he just didn't get his price from Matias Ekholm. Like, if Matias Ekholm gets dealt this summer because he's that own rental, as it's called right now in the NHL, he's got a year left on his deal, then he becomes a UFA, I won't be surprised. I think it was a calculated gamble that the price would either be as good or better moving forward. Yeah, I, I think that's the case because by all accounts, they were more than willing to take a little bit step, a little bit of a step back and miss the playoffs in Nashville. So I don't think David Poyle kind of got spooked and said, "Ah, you know what? We need to go on this little playoff run." I think he just didn't didn't see the price. And you know, we've heard this from various former executives and current executives, right? Sometimes you just have to hold firm rather than giving up a player for whatever the best offer is because you don't want to show that you know, you're a weak negotiator and then hurt your deals that you're trying to do down the line as well. Bob in Nanaimo says, I don't think Jamie is totally wrong and his point stands on the Columbus example, but that could also be an outlier. Teams that always move on from assets send the message to the players they are simply that, assets. Teams like that turn into Edmonton and Buffalo, continually selling at deadlines, banking on the future players, creating something within an organization that hasn't given any reason to want to be there long term. I think it's a valid point. I do think there's part of it that sends a message to your fan base, but I also think there's that commitment to the players in the organization as a signal. And in the Vancouver example, to me, is a part of that, Karen. We are committed enough to you as a future that we're going to do this for you now. We're going to show you that we are serious about giving you an opportunity. I think that, I think that message 
has to be sent by an organization at some point. I do, yeah. Being committed to your assets and this is, I drafted you and I'm going to build around you and we're going to make a competitive team and that's what the Canucks have in some of their younger players in competitive in looking at, you know, the Elias Pettersons and Quinn Hughes and other young players on this roster, I look at, say, an Edmonton team. Like, how much pressure is on Ken Holland right now? And I think there's massive pressure on him to better this roster because you do have somebody, a superstar on your team, two stars on your team, to appease a fan base, appease a player. Like, at what point do you say, okay, our window is right now, and so we have to go all in? Like, there's there's very different aspects that each franchise is looking at about what their time is to go in and I do think if if you're in Edmonton just I'll use that example because we know the pressure is there they basically got a four-year window and Ken Holland's got four years to have to go and try and win a Stanley Cup or at least get to a Stanley Cup with Connor McDavid and that's the pressure on that team so the pressure on a Vancouver is to appease the younger players build them into a Stanley Cup contender Ken Holland is a here and now with that type of situation I, I agree with Bob Go ahead, Jamie. Sorry, I, I agree with I agree with Bob Scotty, the texture who said, you know, look, you eventually eventually you have to commit to building a winner. I totally agree with that. You know, he points to Edmonton and Buffalo, though. I don't think the problem with Edmonton and Buffalo has been that they've been, you know, too patient and too cautious. If anything, they've made mistakes and gotten in trouble by kind of trying to jumpstart things and and feeling that pressure of, oh man, we got to do something to show we're serious. We'll go sign Jeff Skinner. That that'll show everyone we're serious. And then it doesn't work out. So you have to be able to balance that with. You know, recognizing that the thing that is ultimately going to change the culture is building a winning team. That's what you got to focus on. And if that means having a little bit of patience, then that's what you got to do. Well, we'll dive into this a little bit later on in the final hour of the program because I actually think in Edmonton, the theory was correct, the execution was poor. They tried it a few years ago. It didn't work out for a bunch of different reasons. Buffalo, maybe you can make the same case. Good text, good conversation, and we got plenty more on your way. How much pressure is there in Toronto right now? to give this Blue Jays team a chance, and how much pressure is there to get the Blue Jays playing back in Toronto? Hazel May, she was at the All-Star game as well. I'm not sure that Vladdy home run has landed. We'll see if we can get confirmation from her next on Rental and Sermon. That is Hazel May in conversation with one of the four Blue Jays All-Stars. That is Teoscar Hernandez having a laugh about Vladdy Guerrero Jr. winning the MVP at the All-Star game the other night. I did like the trophy. I liked that glass crystal whatever it is bad it's probably not crystal it looked really nice <laughs> it looked really cool yeah it's it's something that you can put on display proudly in your home sometimes scott when you win these like you see golf and some of the trophies that you win i'm like mm, that one really doesn't need to go on display anywhere it's like a weird red u or some something like that this one's like one yeah i can proudly display that i was the all mvp of the all-star game i just gotta say too Excuse me. I was eating some pineapple there. Um, when, like, that's the first time Hazel May right. in, in, um, has interviewed a Toronto player this season in person. Like, she actually got to travel to the All-Star game. It just feels like that must have been really cool for her. She's doing all this stuff remotely and just having fun, talking to a guy, just... It's kind of like, okay, this is, this is things are back to normal. I'm, I'm very excited to see what her experience was like at the All-Star game because it did feel like so much more normality just looking at that event. I have not been on a plane since the pandemic hit. I'm not sure about nope. you. My wife is traveling nope. today. I'm interested to hear from her later today, traveling within Canada, as to what the experience is like. And I think for everybody, it's a little bit different. So we'll ask Hazel May about that. The trophy, back to that for a second. You're mm -hmm. right. Most trophies, pretty standard kind of look to them. They all try to make themselves unique. But you can go put that on a shelf. That bat, like you need a special holder for that. If you're going to display <laughs> that, I don't know if they give that to you with 
the Ted Williams Award there, and you get to actually put that out there and say, okay, I've got the holder for it so that it works on a shelf. Do you have to go purchase that yourself? I'm not sure what you do. Is that something you would suspend, Karen, from a couple of wires or, or like, fishing line from the ceiling, have it look like it's just levitating midair? No, I think I'm putting it on the wall. I'm going to support it to the wall. The levitation kind of seems a little... I guess it depends where you're putting it. Like, are you going to put it over your fireplace? I mean, I guess you could levitate it there. That might look cool. I think, Scott, the idea is that you get the bat, you figure it out on your own. Like, these guys, they can afford to do it themselves. You don't need to give them the the wall construction to put this bat on. I think they're good with that. Do you allow anyone to touch it? No, because do you want to clean that thing? Imagine getting fingerprints on that. It's going to be difficult to clean. It's less about Keep that. Clean. It's less about that. It's less about that. It's more about whether the thing would break. Like, do you allow someone to come over? Oh, dude, that looks cool. Can I see that? Because it's a bat. The first no. thing that somebody who comes over is going to want to do is pick it up. They're going to hold it at one end and then the other. And you know the first thing they're going to want to do after that. They're going swing to it. want to take a practice <laughs> swing in the air with that sucker. Do you allow anyone to touch that? No, that's off limits. That's staying in, you know, maybe you put it in like an enclosed case, Scott, because it's so special and so fragile. You're just like, no, it's enclosed. I got to protect it at all costs. I'm not letting anybody touch that. Maybe Senior gets to touch it. I'm just saying his dad. Got to be a better way to say Maybe Vladdy Senior gets to touch it. Hazel May, reporter, host with the Blue Jays. Fantastic part of our Sportsnet coverage. And she joins us here today on Rental and Sermon. Hazel, thank you very much for doing this. How are you today? I'm great. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. No problem whatsoever. We're just having a little bit of a fun debate with Vladdy getting the trophy that's the cool bat. Do you actually allow somebody yeah. to touch that in the future? It's it's breakable. Like, what's your policy on that if you own that? Uh, if you own it, I don't let anyone touch it, especially in these times. You just kind of keep it to yourself unless you're wearing gloves or you've got a, you know, a bag full of sanitizer next to you. Hazel, I wanted to ask you, because this is your first trip of the season. Like, what was it like for you getting back on an airplane, knowing that you're going to cover a baseball game, albeit an all-star game, but still it must have been, like, the anticipation and finally getting to do it must have been great for you. It was, yes, it was. It was, um, as, you know, our colleague Shai Davidi said, it was like being released out into the wild. Um, (laughs) uh, We were, you know, tested before we boarded the plane, um, then tested when we uh, boarded back to come back to Canada. We did all the safety protocols, but it was very, I would say, unnerving um, getting to the ballpark. There were no one masked. Everybody mm-hmm. that was on the field and allowed um, in with media credentials had to be fully vaccinated. So that was a little bit, um, you know, comforting. But, you know, a lot of these people haven't seen uh, me and my colleagues for almost two years. So their initial uh, reaction to meeting us was coming in for a big hug. So the first Ah. maybe two or three hugs, I kind of froze because it was just so odd and it was a little weird. Um, There were a lot of handshaking. So it was one of these things where we really needed to kind of, get used to it. Uh, We took the stairs instead of the elevator. We tried to get away from walking amongst the fans in the concourse. We were just trying to be smart about it. But 
it was, you know, it was great to be on the ballpark. It was great to meet a lot of the guys that we haven't seen in, you know, almost two years. But it is one of these things, Karen, to be honest with you, it took a lot of getting used to. I don't think yeah. uh, we felt at all comfortable 100% until probably the second day we got there. The first day, it was just a, a really odd feeling. And um, it was great that everybody was happy to see us. But it was one of these things, you know, do you do you kind of go in for the hug? Do you go in for the handshake? Because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people down in the United States have kind of turned the page and, um you know, their mindset was, you know, I'm fully vaxxed. I can just get back to quote unquote normal where we're still, you know, we're still taking baby steps. And I think, yeah, that does speak to the we're excited to get back to normal, but none of us are kind of sure how we're going to react in society exactly. when we finally get back to that point. Before we talk about the Blue Jays at the All-Star Game, I do want to talk about Shohei Otani and the buzz around him just with the players. And I saw a picture that Marley Rivera posted from ESPN yeah. and Vlad Jr. actually asked her to ask Shohei's interpreter so he could speak to him and get a picture because he just wanted to talk to Shohei. What was the buzz like being there, seeing it around Shohei? I can tell you that on the field, there was, um, I was told by our MLB contact that there were 2,000 media credentials um, uh, issued for the All-Star Game, which was, for people who don't know, far less than what it usually is. A, Denver, not a, not a big big market, not in L.A., a Boston, a Philly, a New York. Um, there were 2,000, and I would say about three-quarters of the media had cameras and um, people following Shohei wherever he went on the field. We were not allowed in the clubhouse, but they were surrounding him behind the batting cage, uh, by the dugouts, and that's not including the Japanese and the Asian reporters that were also there covering Shohei. So as far as trying to get a glimpse of him, it was a little tough if you weren't, you know, rights holders and you weren't right on the field. But everybody's attention was on Shohei when he was out there on the field. When it came to the home run derby, everybody was, you know, anticipating Shohei to put on this huge show. And he did put on a show. It just wasn't good enough to get past the first round. But you could sense in Coors Field that once Shohei was eliminated, you can kind of, it felt like the the air was let out of the balloon. It was just kind of this big letdown until, of course, Pete Alonso took things into his own hands and just got the excitement level back up there. But it was this, you know, once he was eliminated, there wasn't um, as much attention. You could see a lot of the fans leaving their seats, going to the concession stands, that kind of thing. Um, But when the final round came, of course, the excitement returned. But it was all about Shohei. And it was great that Vladdy got a lot of attention. Fernando Tatis Jr. got a lot of attention. But, of course, this was Shohei's all-star game. Hazel May joining us here, talking Blue Jays, talking baseball on Rintoul and Sermon. Most of your coverage of Vladdy over last year and this year, of course, has been from afar. But as we mentioned earlier, you got to be there and you got to be around Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at this All-Star game. Hazel, you've covered him, and he's one of the few people who can relate to the amount of attention that Shohei is getting because we followed him with cameras and microphones and every level of baseball for the last number of years. He's delivering on the expectation right now. Does it feel different being around him right now? Does his aura come across different? Absolutely. Um, It was interesting because the last time we were at spring training um, in person was 
I would say, February of 2020 before the shutdown. And I remember his translator, Hector LeBron, saying to me, have you seen um, how much weight he's lost? And I said, yeah, he looks great. And he said, Hazel, I'm telling you, he's quote unquote going to go off this season. Now, of course, I'm nodding and I'm smiling and I'm like, that's great. You know, everybody thinks you lose a little weight, you get into better shape. You know, it's inevitable that you play a little bit better. Um, But his interpreter knew from spring training that, you know, the season that he was going to have coming up was going to be just off the charts. And excuse me, it should have been 2021. In 2020, he was, you know, not in the best of shape. He, he did lose some weight, but gained it back after the shutdown. Going into spring training in 2021, that's when his trainer said to me he was going to go off this season. And then he started hitting better and better. And as the season went, um, I remember Hector LeBron saying his confidence level was just sky high. He felt that he had let himself down. He felt like he let his team down in 2020. He felt like he let um, the people back home in the Dominican Republic down. He was really focused. And I think a lot of the attention that went to the Ronald Acuna Juniors and the Juan Sotos and the Fernando Tatis Juniors um, really took, you know, took him by surprise. I don't want to use the word embarrassed because that's what other people were telling me, that he felt embarrassed. Um, by his performance in 2020, he was so laser focused and so motivated to be the kind of player many expected him to be um, with all the hype, Baseball America, top prospect in baseball. Um, He wanted to live up to those expectations. He knew deep down inside he had what it took. But I think after the weight loss, then comes the confidence. When the confidence comes in, then you've got yourself in a better frame of mind, um, to to be the kind of player you want to be. And I feel like he knew from the get-go, from 2021 spring training, that this was going to be a big season for him. And he's at the top of the list of the young Jays stars right now and what they're delivering this season. And we can all talk about Bichette. And and Biggio hasn't been as prominent this year, but he's come on. And this team can roll with anybody offensively. I'm not expecting a Tulowitzki deal, David Price, Ben Revere. I'm not asking for that. But I look at this team, most people feel it's better than its record right now, and it has a bit of an it factor to it. Does this team deserve a better chance to do something this season? Does this team deserve some sort of bolstering of the roster? Absolutely. Absolutely. When you look up and down this roster um, and you look at the offensive firepower and remember, uh, Marcus Simeon, there's no guarantee that he's going to resign with the Blue Jays. Um, Ryu has a couple of years left in his deal. You're going to have uh, the Springer and Ryu combo only for the next couple of seasons. So um, this is the opportunity that they were looking for. You've got the firepower. You've got a couple of the guys in the rotation that have really kind of um, far and exceeded expectations. You just need a couple of, you know, pitchers. Definitely the bullpen kind of solidified. It, it's nice that Ryan Barucki is due to be back. But you do need a couple of arms just to keep these guys in the ball game. Um, they're going to hit. Um, so they just need a couple of more pieces if they can just hang on and get them a couple more pieces to go on a run here. And the next uh, couple of homestands are going to be huge. Uh, they play they play uh, Boston uh, a lot over the next couple of weeks. So I think it's going to be 
one of these things where they need to get off on a great start, obviously, for the second half, but to get on a bit of a roll. They've got to get going. They've got to get that, you know, that um, Boston's not going to lose five in a row. They've got to get that momentum where if the Yankees and the Rays and the Red Sox falter a game or two, maybe three, they have to be in a position to take advantage of that and get back into the wild card race. Um, sure, there's 75 games left. Uh, I, plenty, plenty of time. But other teams are also going to get better. You're not the only ones that are going to try to improve your bullpen. You're going to try to improve your rotation. Everybody else is. So um, all they need is a couple more arms. Uh, I think they've got enough bats. Look, if it, I, I'm hearing these uh, rumors of a Nelson Cruz. Would any team love a Nelson Cruz? Of course. Is it is the offense what everybody is kind of looking at as the one thing that needs to, to get going in the second half? No. It, it's arms. It's pitching. It's the bullpen. So I think – if they want to make a run at it, you got to do it now when you've got the perfect bats in that lineup to get you on a run um, in the second half. Hazel, then, and like you said, they're going to get some clarity before the July 31st trade deadline. Seven of the next 13 games are against the Red Sox. When you look at this team and the expectations of this team, you could make a very good argument that their record should be better than what it is and that their team is better than what their record says. Do you think there's an honest push to look at going for the AL East or for this team? It's more about let's make that push for the wild card race. You know, it's going to be tough to catch Boston. Um, um, I think we're all realists, too. Um, Unless, like I said, they get on some crazy run and Boston kind of falters right out of the gate in the second half. I I think right now the, the realistic goal is a wild card spot. But once again, to the wild card, I mean, anything can happen. I think everybody knows once you get your foot in the door to the postseason, everybody starts at zero and anything can happen. Uh, Look, I... Personally, I could see them in that wild card position winning the AL East. I think it would be great. It would be tough just given the way Boston has played. Um, if the if the Blue Jays can't get the bullpen uh, going and get the bullpen to be a little bit more consistent and reliable, uh, the Red Sox are just going to run away with the division. So I think right now they should kind of just set their sights on the wild card. And then once they're in one of the two spots, we'll see what happens. How realistic is it to think that the Toronto Blue Jays are playing home games by the end of this month? By the end of this month, if you had asked me that last week when I heard that, um, you know, everybody was making a push for July 30th, I would have been more uh, confident. But from what I was hearing at the All-Star Game with some of my MLB contacts, uh, they, you know, they didn't say, you know, it was a definite thing, but they did think that July 30th, would be a long shot. August 20th was a lot uh, more realistic. Um, But, you know, the Blue Jays, the last I heard from the Blue Jays, everything is, you know, being prepared at Rogers Center as if they're going to be back for July 30th. For Sportsnet, our coverage, I know that there are people working around the clock to get the concourse set up for Jamie and Joe for the pre- and post-game show. Um, that's been ongoing over the last week to 10 days to get the set up and running for July 30th. So there is still a shot. I'm hearing so many different reports about the Jays wanting uh, the government to let them know that they're approved for July 30th by tomorrow. 
And I'm hearing from the Associated Press that the government isn't quite ready to give them um, a yes or no until after the weekend. So who knows? Who Honestly, we are waiting just like you and Karen are. We're waiting for word. I'm reaching out to my colleague, Shai, who's got his ear to the ground. He's got some insiders he's been working with to see whether they will be back July 30th. But believe me, I would be the first one jumping up and down. But mm-hmm. I believe the realistic date right now would probably the homestand after July 30th, which would be August 20th. Only team in baseball with a positive record, more wins than losses, that has a negative home record. It's understandable given how they've been displaced, first in Dunedin and now in Buffalo. We will all cross our fingers as Jays fans, which Karen and I certainly count ourselves as. Hey, Hazel, you have been a very, very obvious personality and big personality and visible personality is what I, the word I was looking for there in baseball for many years. We are going to see, the New York Times reported this today, we are going to see the first all-female broadcast next week in Major League Baseball history. It's going to be women play-by-play, on-field analysts, booth analysts, anchors as well. How significant a step is this for this sport? Oh, it is, I mean, beyond significant. I mean, it is amazing. I know that I was really pumped up when Sportsnet had the all-female hockey broadcast. That was exciting. You can't be it unless you see it. You've heard that expression all the time. I think it's a long time coming. There are women who are capable um, and just need the opportunity. And, you know, thank you to the person who thought that an all-female broadcast uh, could live up to the expectations of a major league baseball game. So I think this is huge. I, I think that this moment or when that moment happens, the next time it happens and the next time it happens and the next time it happens, it isn't such a big deal. I always, I always tell people that um, when someone wants to interview me or just talk to me because I'm a female in a male-dominated world, I always think, you know, one day it would be great when someone wants to talk to me about the Blue Jays and not so much about the fact that I'm a woman in a male-dominated field. I want it to be such a normal, everyday thing that it's so boring that it's not news anymore. I know this all-female broadcast is news because it's the first time it's happened, but I feel like it's we got to start somewhere. So this is a big deal, and I'm sure you know, it will be covered all across North America. It, it's, it's a big event. But afterwards, I hope it's just one of these things where – oh, hey, who's calling that game? Who's doing play-by-play? And whether it be Mel, Melanie Newman or well, it, whether it be Don Orsillo, it's not such a big deal. So I'm going to be watching, you know, all those ladies I know. They're all super talented. Their resumes, uh, you know, they're qualified, beyond qualified. And uh, I just, I, I'm thrilled for them. And I'm glad they're taking this first step because the steps afterwards I hope will be boring and mundane and not so newsworthy because it's an everyday occurrence. Agree wholeheartedly and to your point earlier like the hockey broadcast boy did it deliver the basketball broadcast they have delivered I expect the exact same thing I think they will drive home that point and it will become somewhat boring here hopefully in the very near future Hazel (laughs) but certainly in the future. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. I really am for someone who's been in this business for a long time. um, To see that, to see that that's possible in in this time is um, really thrilling for me, and I'm looking forward to it. 
Well, we hope to be seeing you at Rogers Center very, very soon. I know you've got your fingers yes. crossed as well, and we will all await that announcement. Thank you very much for shedding some light on the Blue Jays and your insight here today. We always appreciate it when you have time, despite how busy you are. Thank you, Hazel. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You as well. That is Hazel May, Sportsnet reporter and host for Blue Jays coverage and Major League Baseball coverage as well. That story breaking this morning, New York Times was first to have it. And I wanted to get her perspective because she has been one of the more prominent, Mm -hmm. visible females in a sport that has largely been male-dominated. I love her words, believe it. When you see it, then you can believe it, Scott, she said. And when I got into this industry, I got into this industry because I saw female sideline reporters and I thought NFL games and I thought I can do that. Like, that's what I want to do. But that's the only visible role I basically had in thinking about how to get into the media. So that was what my goal was. It's changed over the years because the evolution of females being accepted in this industry has changed as well. Leah Hextel, we had her on. You mentioned the all-female Sportsnet hockey broadcast. Well, now look what she's doing. She's the first female national broadcaster to call hockey games for ESPN. They picked her up. The New York Islanders have done it too. They've had all-female broadcasts. They are very accepting of having the females in an analyst role, in a play-by-play role. You see now with Major League Baseball, the Raptors did it this season, and it was a wonderful broadcast, and Kia Nurse had like her coming-out party as an analyst, and we fully believe like once her playing days are done, that's a seamless transition for her. So I love it. I'm so happy that the opportunity is getting there for more females because – in an industry that wasn't accepting of it in the past, it's becoming more and more open, and one day it will be, like Hazel said, a very boring story to talk about. Doris Burke's a great example. Like At one Love point, her. it was a big deal that Doris Burke was either calling or analyzing an NBA game as the lead on either of those chairs. Now, she's just one of the best NBA analysts out there. That's what Doris Burke is. She proved that, and, and that has become a tired storyline when it's associated with Doris Burke. She's like any other announcer out there. Oh, do, do I like her? Do I not? Most people certainly do consider her one of the best in the game. And that's when we get to the point Hazel's talking about where we're saying, oh, I really like the call of so-and-so. It has nothing to do whether it's male, female, mm-hmm. whatever. It's Rintoul. It's Sermon. We will continue our discussion into the final hour of the program. Want to get back into that is it worth it conversation and some interesting quotes coming out. Shea Weber drove a lot of traffic with our listeners this morning. We'll talk about that. Boy, was that a surprising story that came out last night. And Elliot Friedman answers this question. Which Western Canadian team has the most interesting offseason ahead? Find out next on Rintoul and Sermon. Is that the last goal Shea Weber ever scores in the National Hockey League? Could be. Didn't think we'd be having this discussion today, but that story breaks last night. It's Rintoul and Sermon, and now there's a whole lot of discussion about Shea Weber, and yet a lot of it seems to focus on his contract, the implications for the Habs, the implications for the National Predators, cap recapture. That's the angle a lot of people are coming at this from. I don't know where that goes. We just had the question, Karen, come into the inbox. What's your take on the Weber contract? Can Canucks fans hope that it goes the way it went for them with Luongo, with Nashville? Is there going to be that cap recapture penalty i don't know i didn't think it was going to go that way with roberto luongo as was correctly pointed out by one of our texters early today karen luongo wanted to get into management he wanted to pursue that aspect of his career more quickly if he's on nail tir he can't go work for the front office and he wasn't going to let that stand in his way so he pushed forward shea weber i don't know my gut feel is if he's in pain to the point where he can't continue his nhl career and that's what drives him out of the game 
a few years earlier than any of us expected. My gut is that he's a lay-low kind of guy for a while. That's just the personality he strikes me as. And also, do should we really be hoping for that? Because it means the player's career is over. And I understand that there's some, you know, negative aspect because of the fact the Canucks had the cap recapture. But, I mean, you're also hoping for ill will against another team who was within their rights when they signed the contract. I don't know. I don't I don't like the word hope. That's the only thing I don't like. Uh, just to quickly, we had a text to the inbox just asking what did happen with Shea Weber. There was a report, for those that didn't know, uh, a report that came out yesterday that Shea Weber was not going to be protected in the expansion draft. That's how it happened, Scott. Followed with latest medical evaluations. He's got foot issues, ankle issues, and knee issues that he's had previous to this year. And he also dealt with a thumb issue. All of those things could mean that he could be out this upcoming season. So put on LTIR, he could also be having his career over because of all of these issues and his body just can't heal. So for those that haven't listened, there's the contract and the cap recapture penalty that the Predators are facing if he retires. There's the long-term IR and the people making the jokes, well, he'll be back for the first round of the playoffs like Nikita Kucherov. Also the long-term IR, he doesn't retire and Nashville doesn't have the cap recapture. There is this sum of it all succinctly. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation right now. What we know for a fact is that Shea Weber's been in a considerable amount of pain. He's broken to a certain degree. And what that means for his NHL career is up in the air. And the fact is he's hurt badly enough right now that there's at least the idea he might not be able to play anymore. Renaud Lavoie last night said this could be a year. Like, he might miss the entire next season. And, of course, that fueled the chatter about what you're talking about. Oh, this is going to be a Kucherov situation. A lot of people view this stuff very cynically. I understand why, because they feel like they've been burned in the past. He's hurt. He's hurt. And the contract, to me, is an independent discussion from the player. Because the player is going to the Hall of Fame. The player is one of the defensemen of his generation. And he doesn't have all of the Norrises to back it up. In fact, he doesn't even have one, which seems like a head-scratcher, given what he's meant at that position for the bulk of his career. He's got a couple of Olympic gold medals. He doesn't have a Stanley Cup yet. But dude is walking, assume he's going to be able to do that comfortably, I really hope so, into the Hall of Fame when he is able to get there. And Jeff Merrick spoke to the other part of the Shea Weber conversation. Like, it's not just that he's been a great player. It's that, by all accounts, he has been a great teammate. This was Merrick on the Sportsnet 650 airwaves earlier today. You know, players who sign offer sheets tend to eventually during their career get moved. But it didn't really have, like, there's a sort of acrimony when you go back. I remember talking to one player uh, who signed a very high-profile offer sheet, um, and it was matched, and he went back to his team, and it was his teammates who essentially said, wow, you tried to leave, you tried to quit. And it was shortly thereafter um, that the player ended up getting uh, moved out of town. That didn't happen with Shea Weber and the Nashville Predators. It was almost as if, you know, Nashville, you know, the organization, the players on that team as well thought, wow, we really dodged a bullet there. We're just happy uh, to have Shea Weber back in the mix. To me, one of the stories with Shea Weber is, you know, we always talk about, you know, the the guy that holds the team together. I know we do a lot of blathering on about things like leadership and always a good guy in the room yeah well they don't flood the room and i get all the criticism of that i I understand all that but everywhere that he's gone people talk about him the same way and this goes all the way back to to junior hockey like have you ever like conversations around people in sports 
tend to change from year to year, season to season, decade, decade, whatever. But have you ever heard or even heard any whispers about teammates not singing from the same hymn book mm. about Shea Weber? Like there's a lot of things to discuss with his career on the ice, um, fighting through injuries, all of that, the international success, the lack thereof uh, in the uh, in the NHL, mm -hmm. how much of that was market, how much of that was competition. But the thing that always struck me about Weber is everybody says the same thing about this guy. There's not one person that's broken story either on the record or off the record about Shea Weber. And we had some listeners text in people that know Shea Weber when he was a kid, Scott, and everything that they said was he's just like this great guy. And I understand, yeah, like great guy doesn't, you know, lead to his Hall of Fame candidacy. And, but I'm not talking about that. Like, you look at the respect that the players had for Shea Weber after he they lost to the Stanley Cup final. The fact that every single one of them went over to hug him and console him. And again, I will point to this. Did he know more? Did the players know more about what that game actually meant in the grand scheme of things? Did that mean his last game ever in his NHL career? Did they know that? Did he know that? Even if they didn't. The respect that he gets in that locker room and... If it's a captain of your team, whether it is or not, you need to have those guys. And I just think in talking about Shea Weber as a whole, as a player, it has to be talked about the fact that he's a leader in the locker room and the fact that no one else, no one will speak a bad word about him. I think it just shows those are the type of players you want to have, and that's one of the players that Shea Weber has been over his career. He is a brute on the ice, and that's not underscoring his talent because there was plenty of that. I mentioned this earlier. He is the active leader among defensemen in goals scored in his career. He's 15th all-time on that list with 224. He's had an exemplary career, part of its offense, a bunch of its defense, a bunch of its physical as well. And while I'm sure Shea Weber has lifted many a weight over the course of his career, doesn't he just come across as one of those guys like Shane Doan, like farm tough? Like mm -hmm. if you needed a vehicle pushed out of being <laughs> stuck in the ditch, you hope Shea Weber shows up because he's the guy who will help you push that vehicle out. And it's, it's not a product of simply working out. He's just built that way. Yeah, he just looks like a... He could put anything on his shoulders and he will get that job done. He You make it... Like, the farm boy thing just is a perfect thing. He's from Sycamus. We know that from BC. Good old BC boy. And we had these, when we had this conversation earlier, Scott, we had these texts coming in, and they've started coming in again. And I I get the jokes. I do get it. But, you know, maybe Montreal learned off Tampa Bay and claim Weber's injury. Claim Weber's injury. He'll be injured all of next year and suddenly be available for the playoffs. That's from Rocket and Langley. Hey, guys. Has Montreal already learned from Tampa Bay? Keep Weber until the playoffs, then bring him back. A la Kucherov, can't beat him, join him, Kevin and Pitt Meadows. <laughs> Tampa Bay Lightning have a very talented roster. We saw that. You take Nikita Kucherov off that roster, it's a pretty good roster in the NHL. We saw. It was third in that pretty decent division. They got into the playoffs without Nikita Kucherov. They've got a bunch of other stars in this team. You take Shea Weber off this roster moving forward, exact same roster, say you don't replace him with a defenseman, which is what you're going to have to do if he's not there. You think you're making the playoffs? Honestly, you think you're making the playoffs with that with that Montreal roster? I'm going to lead towards no. Yeah, and again, people will say, the, the counter to that is, well, if Weber's off the roster, you're replacing him with somebody in the free agent market, and let's just say it's Dougie Hamilton, who's a far different style of defenseman. Let's say you go out there and do that, and then you bring Weber back later. Like, there's a way around all of this, but your point is well made. 
Montreal barely made the playoffs with Shea Weber. And he was injured mm-hmm. a little bit, and Gallagher was beat up, and Price was hurt. There were a bunch of different reasons. They had COVID. Their schedule got super compact. Like, there were a bunch of different reasons. Montreal was the last team to qualify for the postseason this year. But we've made that point ad nauseum with Nikita Kucherov. Okay, if you think it's so easy to rest your most productive offensive player, arguably your best skater, go ahead. See how that works out. For most teams, it's not going to work out terribly well. Tampa Bay just happens to be so loaded that they could afford it. And you take off Shea Weber and say, okay, you added Dougie Hamilton, but and you're coming back with Corey Perry's re-signed. Eric Stahl's not, but you're going to fill his role. You look at the core of that roster and you look at, say, what it potentially could be. you got to play Tampa Bay. You got to play the Florida Panthers. You got to be in a division with Boston Bruins. You've got to be in a division with Toronto Maple Leafs. Like, do you think Montreal is a team that just takes this player off and goes, even with this player, do you think that Montreal Canadiens are a likely playoff team to come up one of the top three in that division? I don't think so. Greg, the dairy farmer says Montreal will get destroyed next year in that division. Toughest division in hockey. I'm not sure it's the toughest division in hockey. The Metropolitan will be brutal i would still label it a tougher division top to bottom but your point is well made greg this one comes in i disagree with it wholeheartedly i will explain why in a second and i understand why some of the venom gets pointed in this direction if there's a cap recapture penalty it should be applied to philadelphia since it was an rfa offer sheet that nashville simply matched the terms and contract structuring wasn't nashville's idea sorry doesn't work that way if i buy a house And the reason I buy the house at the price I get it is because other bidders have driven up the price, but I say I'm willing to match that or go just a little bit better. I don't get somebody to pay my mortgage a few years later if I'm not financially able to support it. Doesn't work that way. They're not on the hook. Their offer wasn't accepted. Philadelphia has to move on. Philadelphia, like, we can talk about whether it was punitive enough or not, but they signed Chris Pronger to that big contract and ended up having to pay it all out by the end of it. Because it was a 35-plus contract. They envisioned Chris Pronger still playing. He wasn't able to play. The the Chris Pronger situation factors in here a little bit because Luongo comes in, and why didn't he just go on LTIR? Pronger did, and then he worked for the league, which was mind-boggling for a lot of people at the time. Hold on a second. So there's a team paying for him, and he's on their roster, and they get to create cap space for that. But he can go work for the NHL at the same time? How does that work? and it wasn't until after the contract expired he was actually able to work in in a management group it was florida that hired him at the time so that's that goes some way to explaining why luongo did what he did and wanting to take the next step in his career in hockey but i digress yeah he's he's he saved uh, florida as a texture pointed out earlier on in the show i think at the nine o'clock hour saying he t- he saved florida some money ended up screwing the Canucks in the process uh, because of the cap recapture, but save them actual dollar figures having to pay him. He gets a pretty cushy job in management, and that's the role that he wanted to go. Maybe Shea Weber goes and works for the NHL. I highly doubt that, but maybe that's the decision he does, and the NHL allows for that to happen. Nashville didn't have to sign the offer sheet. So if you're blaming Philly for it, Nashville doesn't have to sign this. And, you know, it's they made the decision. And I was listening to some conversation this morning on the fact that, like, they had to go scrounge some money together to make this deal happen. <laughs> like, it was not an easy deal. And David Poyle only had, what, a week to make a decision on making this. He went. He said, okay, we're going to keep this core. It was Ryan Suter at the time. It was Pecorini on that team. And he wanted to keep Shea Weber. And he did. So, yeah, Philly, you could say, is the catalyst for this. But... Nothing says David Poyle has to sign it. 
Gary Bettman, despite the cap recapture penalty being a thing, he's one of the guys that would have been happy Nashville matched it. He wants parity in this league. He doesn't want mm -hmm. big market, high finance teams taking from the likes of a Nashville, which is a smaller market and certainly at the time not a very flush franchise. So he would have loved that at the time. I don't buy that Philly should be punished. You might not like it. You can call it dirty business if you want. And yet, what do we all ask for as hockey fans? Can we see some offer sheets out there? Can we make this <laughs> a little business. more interesting? Yes, absolutely. I mean, what we've seen, one offer sheet, the last offer sheet is the Dustin Penner. And look at the fireworks that led to that between Brian Burke and Kevin Lowe. Like, that that led for amazing fireworks between the two of them. Then you've got the Mark Bergevin doing the Sebastian Ajo. That's the last one that was signed. We just don't see it, Scott, but it's a tool that is out there and put it out for the league to help your team. Just GMs just kind of have a, I don't know if they have a handshake agreement. They're too scared to lose the assets. I don't know what the reason is, but you just don't see it ever in the NHL anymore. Well, or, and the Sebastian Ajo, the Sebastian Ajo one is connected to the Weber one in this, at least for me. There are some that say that Weber wanted to leave Nashville. I don't buy that. I think he wanted to get business done. Sebastian Ajo didn't want to leave Carolina, but he wanted to get business done, <laughs> and he knew by signing an offer sheet he triggered a decision. You have to be willing to go if your team doesn't match, but generally, to your point, they get matched in the NHL. So some of this is just, I want to get my contract done. I'm going to sign this offer sheet so that I know one way or another it's done in seven days. Like, my business is done. Shea Weber, I think, did the same thing. I think if Nashville had come to him with that offer before Philadelphia even had a chance to do that, he's signing it. And it was one of those deals you just can't walk away from. Like, who's walking away from the Shea Weber deal if it gets put in front of them? Nobody. That's 14, who. 14 years, 110 million dollars like no one's walking away from it it's like the deals with that were just bought out from ryan Suter and zach parisi at the time it was equals what 196 million dollars between the two of them scott like you're not walking away from that and that's the reason why there is you know the rules in place now that you can't sign these but if you have someone offering you that amount of money and i don't care what the term like the the, the years that come with it you can deal with years 10 11 12 yourself down the road, but it's structured in a way where you're getting paid out all this money up front as well. Yes, absolutely. You're signing that. Absolutely. So sports sent it with me. <laughs> I'm exactly, that's exactly where I was going, Karen, exactly where I was going. And yet if Winnipeg, if Winnipeg called today and somebody in Winnipeg said, Karen, we'll give you half a million dollars to move here. You might say, oh, it's been nice. This, this show has been a slice, but for half a million dollars a year, maybe I'll consider it. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I, I have said there's going to be a lot of money. It would take a significant chunk of change to have me to move back to Winnipeg. But if you start putting six figures and seven figures in front of it, seven figures, not six, seven figures in front of it, that's a decision I would have to th think about. See, I'm calling your bluff. I'm calling your bluff. I think there is a six-figure number that would make you take it. 999. <laughs> like, it's got a lot of nines involved in it, six nines. I think we could get it down in the sevens, maybe five, $500,000 a year in this economy, Karen. Well, and you think about it, that. that money goes a lot longer in the economy that is Manitoba and the housing market that is Manitoba. I mean, I can't retire at that salary. I got to make that salary. But maybe, you know, I can retire at the age of 50 instead of, you know, 65, 70, whatever the case is, that's the plan that I'm on right now. As someone who's a lot closer to 50, retiring at 50 sounds pretty good to me right now. It's Rintoul, it's Sermon. I promised you'd get the answer to this from Elliot Friedman in the last tease, so I can't disappoint the listeners here. I don't know if Elliot Friedman considers Winnipeg a Western Canadian team or not. Do you consider Winnipeg a Western Canadian team? 
Yes. Oh, Winnipeg. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, because they're in the Western Conference. Yes. I do as well. Elliot Freeman was asked, which Western Canadian team has the most interesting offseason ahead? Here is his answer earlier today. Well, I think Edmonton. Uh, Edmonton's pretty interesting. I mean, they made the one move that was uh, universally cheered, and uh, and uh, and I and I think they've got more coming. Like I think we all wonder if they're in on the Hyman stuff. Yeah, and um, you know, like the goalie. If, if yeah, if it's not Hyman, maybe it's Armia. I think we're all wondering what they're doing on the blue line here. You know, I, I thought Larson would be signed. He hasn't been signed yet. We'll see if this is a post-expansion draft thing. All these teams have interesting things around them, but I think Edmonton is probably the one that's got the most balls in the air. I, You know, they're deciding. Mike Smith, one year or two, and then they have to go get another goalie, too. Is mm-hmm. it Georgiev? Is it one of the Vegas guys? Like, you know, like they were one of the teams that was linked to uh, Columbus's goalies, you know, and, and, you know, I, I just don't know how all this is going to unfold now in Columbus um, with, with all the tough things that they've been through recently. Um, you know, I think Edmonton's got a lot of balls in the air. Like they, they've, and, and my, one of my theories, as you know, Jeff, is that one of the reasons they got the key deal done was they said, okay, we have certainty here. We've got this done. Now we've got to deal with one last thing to worry about with everything else. Elliot makes a good case for Edmonton in that answer. I think you can make a very good case for the other Western Canadian teams outside of Winnipeg. I don't think Winnipeg will be the most interesting team. I think Edmonton, that case, Calgary might do less business but might do the biggest deal, if that makes any sense. Like, they might have the biggest splash deal, biggest consequential trade that we're debating mm-hmm. of the three teams beyond Winnipeg that are on this side of the country and Vancouver I could see being the most active yes um <laughs> back they're most active with Vancouver yes because the general manager has said it and because there's a lot of positions within his roster Scott that he has to upgrade but it's not an upgrade that Edmonton has to do because the aspirations between the two team I think teams at this point are different like yes you have to appease younger players in vancouver uh show that you're building something but with edmonton you are appeasing two stars specifically one superstar showing that you are willing to make decisions and changes to this roster that's going to put you in the upper echelon of the nhl and pushing for multiple playoff round success like i think it's another very extremely unsuccessful season if you're a first-round exit. And I don't think that's that's stating the obvious, I think. Uh, he had mentioned Zach Hyman in there, Andy Strickland earlier today. Of course, he's based out of St. Louis, saying St. Louis among those with legitimate interest in the potential free agent. Also, a number of Canadian teams. He pointed to Edmonton, Vancouver, and Calgary, Scott. He also believes that Seattle could come a player as well. He's a very... Is he a coveted free agent in Zach Hyman? Yep. I guess he is. The only question yep. is, is... Zach Hyman going to be one of those players where a team covets him so much that he's overpaid for? He might be, because Frank Saravelli, I heard him earlier today, said he's heard whispers out there. This is going to scare some fans off, but I'm just going to tell you what Saravelli is hearing. He is hearing that Hyman has the possibility of commanding a 6 by 6 maybe a 7 by 6 contract. 6 would be the term in the six by six and the dollar figure in the seven by six it would be a seven-year deal maybe six he's coveted that much apparently 
you're shaking your head because there are a I lot of fan them. bases that do not that do not want that on their books. But if there's the market and he can land that contract, good on him for getting it. I don't know where he ends up, but he is very much coveted. The other part of that discussion about, okay, which is the most interesting team? If we're talking Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver, the one thing there isn't in Edmonton, because there are different things that drive pressure. Mm -hmm. There's not pressure on the general manager, like internally. Ownership, I don't believe, looks at Ken Holland and says, hey, I better see something big this year. Like, there's always that. No internal pressure that exists when you're trying to take a step. But in Calgary and Vancouver, yeah. oh, you better believe that pressure exists on the general managers. Absolutely. and But general managers that have also spoken up and said, like, changes are going to be made. So there's pressure from ownership, there's pressure on themselves, and there's pressure from the fan bases because both teams have said we had extremely disappointing season based on expectations going in and we have to make a change for next year. You, th you talked about Calgary and them maybe making the biggest splash. And I think it comes down to, and we've discussed this, the, the reason it's the biggest splash is because it comes around the discussion of the core. Like, the core is not the discussion in Vancouver. You've got your core players. It's all about building around them. The discussion in Calgary is, are you willing to go a completely different direction that you thought you were going even last offseason? It's a good question. It's a very good question. Please, God, no more 6x6 six six contracts here. <laughs> that comes in from a Vancouver Texter, it should be a busy week. Karen, I do want to get to this, and we'll talk about it tomorrow, and I hope we're getting some more action on the NHL offseason market tomorrow. We're getting close mm -hmm. to that deadline with protection lists, and some of these teams that have protection issues, they got to make a decision here in the next, well, less than 48 hours. Now, you look at what happens this weekend. Protection lists have to be submitted on Saturday, so tomorrow could be a pretty busy day, activity-wise. Yep. Next Wednesday is the expansion draft. Thursday, now you've got this short window after the players are taken. Everybody knows who's left on their books. Draft picks are available because the draft starts on Friday. It goes through on Saturday. Free agency starts four days after that. Jim Benning was quoted in an article by Ian McIntyre on Sportsnet.ca saying he can see a lot of things happening next Thursday. It feels like it's going to be fast and furious. I keep predicting that. Maybe I'm just putting it out there because I want it to happen. It feels like this next week's going to be fun. I think the next week, I think tomorrow's going to be fun. Like, I think a lot of things are going to shake out later on today, and I think a lot of things are going to shake out. And if they don't, doesn't that kind of speak to what the power of Ron Francis, maybe, and what Seattle's going to do if things don't? I mean, I, I no, don't know. I think because it, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what I think it speaks to. I think it speaks to the power Vegas wielded in the last expansion drafts and a bunch of guys going, I'm not getting burned again. I'm not getting burned. I will just pay the piper, take my player. I don't like it, but I have to deal with it. I think it speaks to Vegas more than Seattle if we don't see activity. It's a fair point. It's it's a fair point because I do think there are a lot of GMs that are gun-shy. One text before we get to break. Six by six, that's right in Jim Benning's wheelhouse. Add a no-move clause, and he's 100% Vegas-bound. Notes and quotes coming your way. Final block of the show right after this on Rental and Sermon. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Ah, the sins of the past. The sins of the past. We're getting those texts in. You mentioned a couple of them before the break. Could Hyman be Benning's next overpayment? <laughs> this is always the fear when you don't have a great deal of confidence in your management. And there are some in the Vancouver fan base that do. There are some in the Calgary fan base that have a lot of confidence in Brad Treliving. And there are others who said, I've seen enough. This has gone on too long. I haven't seen enough progress. 
I would like to see something different. And that is going to always cloud part of your response to hypotheticals like this. Like, nobody said for a second, man, the Canucks and Zach Hyman are close on a deal, or the Flames and Zach Hyman are close on a deal. You just mentioned there's a report out there that, hey, the Blues would be interested, and here are a few other interested suitors who have at least made contact, which can simply mean what would the price be? Like, it can simply be a question of what would the price be for you to come here? That might be it. 29-year-old, 6 by 6 he'll be a coveted player, but I understand that like, that is completely... Uh, the reaction that we're seeing in at least the 650 inbox is because of all the overpayments that have happened in free agency, Scott, and... Louis Erickson's contract finally comes off the book next week or next year. Sorry, next year. Next year's the big one for the Canucks. They lose all of those big deals. But if they cannot figure out a way for a sweetener to someone to take him, which is probably unlikely this offseason, it's Zach Hyman six by six. It's exactly the same conversation if he does not produce at a decent level as Louis Erickson did not produce uh, basically since he got to Vancouver. So I understand the hesitancy of taking on a contract like that. It's going to be pretty interesting to see what happens in the next 24 hours. Is Darcy Kemper traded by tomorrow? And if so, does it mean he's headed to Colorado so they can shore up some of their protection issues as well and figure out what they're doing moving forward and how they're going to do that on their roster? Is it complicated a lot because they got to figure out how to fit Gabriel Landeskog in? Do they have a hard line in the sand when it comes to that contract? A lot of things can happen here pretty quickly. What do you think the situation is in Florida with their goaltenders and Chris Dreger? What do you think is going to happen? Oh, he's going to become a UFA. Yeah. The question is whether they're going to be able to get anything for him. Whether he's either taken in the expansion draft by Seattle, which has long been rumored. He doesn't cost them very much. And Dreger's a guy that this weekend Seattle can talk to and say, look, Mm -hmm. you're not making much money now. We liked enough of what we saw. Let's get a deal done here. That's probably not going to be a massive cap number for a, for a guy like Dreger who hasn't proven it for a very long time. Are you trying to get yourself, say, a Carter Hutton type of deal? And maybe that's overshooting it a little bit because ha- Carter Hutton had more on his resume as far as what he did in St. Louis prior to arriving in Buffalo. But it's not that big money deal, if you know mm-hmm. what I'm getting at. It's not the, hey, you're a coveted top-tier goaltender. We're going to pay you as such. It's... Okay, we'll give you some money, but it's a prove-it deal. We're, you, you proved enough to get to that next yeah. tier, but we're not going to pay you so much that it's going to cripple us and we're tied to it long-term. Yeah, I just wanted to ask because it's something that was out there earlier. It's pretty much gone quiet, probably because of the understanding that he's going to go to UFA if they cannot try and trade him or if Seattle doesn't take him. But now you've got the, yeah, like you said, the Darcy Kemper and the Chris Dreger, and like what do they do in taking their three goaltenders, Scott? Do they take guys that are a bit younger they take guys that have experience it'll be interesting to see how they go about it what we do know is that they're going to take 20 players and they're going to take 14 forwards nine defensemen and three goaltenders we do know that's happening less than a week today i'm very excited to see what happens between now and saturday because the we're going to get some clarity obviously on saturday but there's still going to be a ton of question marks ahead of the uh, expansion draft from saturday to wednesday yeah, and just for clarity, they'll take 30 players, but 20 of Sorry, them have 30. to be under contracts that go into next season is what they have to do. No, yeah. I knew what you were getting at there. There's a bunch of different numbers associated, and, and it gets complicated sometimes as to how it all adds up. Well, you got to take this many forwards, this many defensemen, this many goaltenders. certain amount of guys have to be under contract. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a real fun week in the National Hockey League. Let's get the notes and quotes. <laughs> 
Who's in the top six? Getting pucks out, getting pucks deep. Who's in the crease? Really none of your business. And who's in the press box? It's time for Notes and Quotes. I love that Daryl Sutter clip every time. Maybe it shouldn't amuse me as much as it does. None of your business. It shouldn't amuse me as much as it does, but every single time <laughs> it gets me a chuckle per 60, as Tim McAuliffe likes to call it. We got a major championship underway right now overseas. Mm-hmm. How are things going at the Open? Uh, final guys are wrapping up their rounds right now, but most of the golfers are in. Scott, Louis Oosthuizen, who has had himself a pretty decent season without a victory. He's been runner-up in both the PGA Championship to Phil Mickelson and to John Rahm. Looked pretty poised to win that U.S. Open, but faltered down the stretch, so he's been a runner-up. I found an interesting stat out there. He He would be tied with his countryman Ernie Els in a very distinguished category and probably doesn't want to be in that one with Ernie Els. If he was to be runner-up for this championship, he would tie Ernie with being runner, runners-up in three previous or in three consecutive major championships. Like that, You don't want to be tied with Ernie. You kind of want the Ernie, I win my second major and British Open like Ernie has. But no, he doesn't want to be the three straight runner-up. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. He's playing pretty good golf right now. Mackenzie Hughes, he's uh, four under par, tied for T4th. He had a very good round today as well, as did Corey Connors. He's in at two under par. Adam Hadwin struggled five over. But look who else is up there. Jordan Spieth. And we've talked about the turnaround that he's had in his career. Not just season, but in his career, he's was tied for third at the Masters, you know, T30th at the PGA, T19 at the U.S. Open. He does have a win this year. He went the Valero. His last major championship was 2017. So it's nice to see him adopt the leaderboard. Scott, we've always discussed, it's not about the first round for Jordan Spieth. It's about what you do on Saturday and then maybe on Sunday. Yeah, had the great finish at the Masters, though it never felt like it was his tournament to go out there and grab, fell off in the last two majors. Can he have a little more staying power in this one? We've seen good rounds at those last two events you talked about, but then we saw Jordan Spieth fall off. Can he keep it? He's one shot off the pace right now. Love what you mentioned about McKenzie. He was a tough day for Adam Hadwin. Struggled out there at the Open and was five over in his opening round. Phil Mickelson's having a tough one as well. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Mickelson's dead last, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, he's tied for dead last now. He's got some guy I don't know. Tied for T155. Yes, Phil Mickelson plus 10 on his round. I do want to point out this because I think it's just so Bryson DeChambeau. He's won over for his uh, for the tournament. That's what he shot today. He hit four of 14 fairways. Did you see what he's doing, though? He's going after his manufacturer of his driver. He's like, and it's not me. This is a driver. I'm not comfortable with it. And it's the only driver, like, the specifications that they have for this driver, Scott, are not something you and I could go by. It is made specifically to what Bryson DeChambeau wants with a golf club. And he's been tinkering with it because we know the power, the speed of the swing, and all this sort of things. My my situation and, you know, what I think about this... (laughs) Maybe to try and hit some more fairways by trying to take some power away from it. Like, if you know this is what's going to... If what's going to make you a better golfer, maybe just what's working right now is not it. It's not the technology. It's you. Just throwing that, that out there. Well, this is notes and quotes. So here are the quotes from Bryson DeChambeau. If I can hit it down the middle of the fairway, that's great. But with the driver right now, the driver sucks. It's not a good face for me. We're still trying to figure out how to make it good on the miss hits. I'm living on the razor's edge, like I've told people for a long time. When I did get it outside the fairway, like in the first cut and whatnot, I can catch jumpers out of there, and I couldn't. I catch jumpers out of there, and I couldn't control my wedges. Cobra responded. Yes. Ben Showman, Cobra's tour operations manager, said, 
It's just really, really painful when he says something that stupid. So there is your tete-a-tete with the golf club and golf equipment manufacturer. You mentioned Louis Oosthuizen. He's leading right now. He's been a feel-good story this year. What worked well today? Here's what Louis had to say. I think everything, really. Um, I think today, starting the day quite windy, one or two under would have been a good score. I would have taken that and just um, drove it well and, um, you know, I was finding very good flights on my on my irons and could could manage the, the distance control pretty good and um, you know rolled it nicely on the green. So uh, everything sort of was there today and um, it was just um, it was just a good good round of golf. Finding fairways, being patient, dealing with the wind situation. I do think that Louis Houston has a bit of a patient game right now, Scott. He has the belief in his game as well. I mean, he has a ton of confidence coming off back-to-back second places at a major, so I think that bodes well for him. Uh, I was watching a bit today. I know you have as well. I saw the sun which I think is a positive thing. I haven't seen any rain. Maybe that happened earlier on in the day. The wind seems to be a big factor, as it always is. <laughs> it's a spectacular course when you look at where it is on the coast. But when you look at that golf course, you go, like, how is this a golf course? It just looks like a farmer's field, basically, from the aerial view. <laughs> it's just so different. And I get it's Link's view, and that's what they have over there. But you do really look at it and go, hmm, that's what they're golfing on. Okay. It's a far different game. Lynx golf is just so much different than what we're used to. I know there's some Lynx courses, and they cut them differently, and it's a fun way to play in Canada on those relatively few courses that exist outside of what we traditionally consider a golf course in North America. And that's what makes the Open so much fun. you got to adapt mm-hmm. your game. you got to be flexible. You're putting from 70 feet off the green sometimes, depending on the course. I love that about the Open, don't you? I do. I do think it's the hardest one to win. Uh, some people will argue with it, but there's the elements that you just, especially the non-European players, there are elements that you just don't see in North America. And if you can figure it out, I think it makes the victory all that more special. Well, it's the fact that you got to be creative or you can be creative. We're so used to And part of the thing that we admire about professional golfers and how good they are is that not only can they hit their clubs further, but the amount of control. But we there's a predictability to those who play well in North America. Hit it here, wedge in, spin it tight, all of those different things. You're talking about the open. Guys can just take different clubs. I'm going to bump and run. Like I said, you can putt from all over the place. You can play it off side hills. Like It's, just, it's fun in that sense, and it gets back to a creativity that doesn't always exist on the PGA Tour. And you know what? This might bode well for Mackenzie Hughes. And I got to give Bob Weeks some credit on this because his tweet was perfect. He said, the one thing that Mackenzie Hughes has going this week for him, Scott, is there are no trees on the golf course. (laughs) That's a pretty good line when it comes to Mackenzie Hughes. All right. Just one game in Major League Baseball tonight. We mentioned this yesterday. Jays and the rest of the leagues aren't going to get back in action until tomorrow, save for two teams, the traditional rivals. It's Yankees. It's Red Sox. It is... I think today might be a day that I take away from watching sports on television. Scott, I had to watch the All-Star game. I had to watch the Home Run Derby. I paid attention, at least at the end, to the NBA game yesterday. So, you know, maybe we'll take a break tonight. But, yes, the rest of the league back tomorrow. Jays open the second half hosting the Rangers. The question is, and we pose this to Hazel May, and Sportsnet's trying to figure it all out, and the Blue Jays are trying to figure it out, does the Jays get back at the end of this month? Will they get actual approval? Because we've seen TFC. We've seen... FC Montreal gets some approval. Do the Blue Jays get approval to play at home? 
Well, it's a good question that's out there right now, and we just don't have that answer, but there are a lot of important people working on it, including Canada's Deputy Chief Public Health Officer. He is Dr. Howard New. Here's what he had to say as to where we're going right now. We have uh, reviewed uh, the submission uh, by the, the Blue Jays uh, for that national interest exemption, uh, looking at it from a uh, sort of public health perspective, as we always do for all of these other submissions. And uh, as you can appreciate, uh, uh, what we, we uh, see is that the, the submission by the Blue Jays uh, uh, would look at, uh, quote, uh, uh, resuming a certain point, uh, sort of the regular season uh, based in Toronto, which would then obviously uh, involve uh, cross-border travel for, you know, homestands and then going uh, uh, for road trips as well. Um, from a from a pure sort of assessment of the of the of the protocols, there's been a lot of good uh, good back and forth because uh, uh, based on their initial submission of protocols, uh, we obviously uh, have had some uh, uh, recommendations uh, to be uh, uh, to be uh, sort of made to, to back to the Blue Jays, and they've been very open and willing to uh, uh, to take those recommendations uh, on. And I would say that uh, it's all done in sort of good faith. I would also say it's not as simple as uh, okay, what does this mean for uh, the Blue Jay players? Because obviously. Say it's not the players themselves alone. It's their whole entourage. You know, you got maybe families involved. There's uh, also looking at uh, uh, making sure that uh, provincial and local authorities are are also supportive and so on. So I would say it's a uh, it's a uh, trending in a very uh, good direction at this point. Uh, uh, we're looking at sort of uh, you know I would say uh, last details, but at, at this point I would say. Uh, there aren't any showstoppers or anything that, that we really uh, can't uh, sort of uh, continue to discuss and move forward on. So I, I can't give you a date in terms of uh, uh, when a possible decision would be made uh, for the NIE or national interest exemption. But I would say that uh, uh, in terms of the discussions from a public health perspective, they've been going very well. And just to piggyback on what Hazel May said earlier in the program, while she's not a medical expert and doesn't have definitive word from the politicians on this as well, she said a lot of the buzz at the All-Star game from Major League Baseball colleagues was that August 20th date looks more realistic than July 30th. Some of this is in the hands of Major League Baseball Players Association as well. Part of the proposal is, hey, fully vaccinated players, you would have certain restrictions, non-vaccinated players... You'd have a set of restrictions, depending on which team you're talking about. Players are going to view that differently. Like Major League Baseball's vaccination rate is really high; it's over 85 percent throughout the masses, and 23 teams right 23. now have 85 percent or better. Which is when you compare it to like what's going on in the NFL, for example, that's extremely high. We're talking about like how many teams are over 60 percent threshold. Major League Baseball, 23 of their 30 teams are already over 85 percent. That's really strong. It's really strong, and I'd like to know what the specifics were, what we could talk about, what they were in spring training, Scott, till now, and like what did players who saw that other players were vaccinated and some sort of the restrictions, and did they think, okay, I want to be part of that as well, and I want to let our team be part of that, so I'm going to get it done because maybe it's not something that specifically I want, but I'm going to help others out. I don't know the answer to that. Um, apparently, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is meeting with the country's premiers tonight to discuss measures around the border and details um, from the government are expected in further days, just in the reopening in general of the borders. Uh, like you said, it won't be dissimilar from the plan, like the Blue Jays plan that they've produced that Montreal had during the Stanley Cup finals with the Golden Knights and the Tampa Bay Lightning cross-border like if you are vaccinated specifically blue jays players so if you're vaccinated you're going to be treated like a canadian returning but if you're non-vaccinated you have a lot more restrictions just basically going from the hotel to the ballpark so 
I understand that there are some logistics involved in this and the fact that we're talking about it, I think is great because I honestly thought next March and a March, April is when we were going to see baseball back in Canada. I honestly thought that it was not going to be seen this year. So the fact that we could be talking about it and whether it's early August or late August, I think it's just wonderful for us moving forward. Sports fans are wondering as well. Some would fly, but for example, a place like Toronto or a border city like Vancouver, Fans like to go down to Seattle. I had a Seahawks fan contact me yesterday online saying, any idea with potential border reopening what some of the parameters are going to look like? And I didn't have an answer for this person. <laughs> hey, positive test, uh, pardon me, produce a negative test on the way out and a negative test on the way back. But who ends up picking up the cost on that? Are there going to be financial implications here? This was a Seahawks fan who was thinking, I'd like to get down for a few games this year. Absolutely. Um, I will point this out. Manitoba, and we haven't discussed this, the Manitoba government's completely changing their restrictions, and they're going to allow the season opener, August 5th, Thursday, against the Hamilton Tiger Cats, 100% full capacity in that CFL stadium. It's full open air, so there's that outside. But it has to be Manitobans. And they have to be 100% fully vaccinated. And Manitoba has already started. They will give you a card if you're fully vaccinated individual to 14 days uh, post your second shot. You also get a QR code, code that can be scanned. So my talking to people in the Manitoba media, they're basically saying you have to show your card to get in. and you Or you have to have a scan and it shows a positive. You are fully vaccinated. That is the only way. But they are just limiting it to Manitoba. Like if I'm to fly home to Winnipeg, I can't get in to a CFL game at this point or in August when they open it up. So if you want to talk about restrictions, you know, for even just cross border, there's some provincial cross restrictions that are still in place. Is this going to turn into a VIP thing? Uh, if you know somebody who knows somebody, maybe they can get you a QR code if you're vaccinated in another province. I don't know. Maybe a discussion for Friday, Karen. I say that in jest for the most part. We're going to turn things over to the big show in Calgary, Bick and the Boss in Vancouver. Big ups to Greg Ballack. And, of course, to our Shohei Otani, Jamie Dodd, the producer and frequent voice on this program. Karen, have yourself a wonderful Thursday. You as well. And to the listeners, enjoy the almost end of the week. Yeah, we're getting there, and we will get you there tomorrow. And I think there's going to be some activity NHL-wise. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Have yourself a great day. We'll talk tomorrow morning.